Hello, Dental Online Trainers. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley, and I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered, why do people grind their teeth? I mean, really wondered. Well, if you're like my next guest, Dr. Jeffrey Rouse, you didn't do just wondering. See, Dr. Rouse took it to the next level. I mean, he wanted to understand, truly understand, why people grind their teeth. And he didn't want to just take for granted the information that was taught to us in dental school. You could say, in fact, that Dr. Rouse became obsessed with understanding why do people grind their teeth. Now, this understanding of why people grind their teeth has led him down this journey into airway, or what we call sleep disordered breathing. Now, Dr. Rouse has so much information to share with us. He's been so generous in his information that we've actually broken this sharecast into two separate sharecasts. In the first sharecast, we're gonna listen to Dr. Rouse as he talks about his path in dentistry. And it's not linear. It's very circuitous, so for many of our young listeners, I think you'll find this super interesting about the path Dr. Rouse has taken. In our second sharecast, Dr. Rouse is going to talk more about what it was like and what did he have to learn and the challenges that he had overcome and what he knows now about sleep disordered breathing and airway and how it relates to us in our dental practices. So enjoy the interview with Dr. Rouse. I think you're gonna love the information, and I think you'll be eager to hear the second part when he starts talking about his path into airway. Good morning, dental online trainers. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb, and welcome to our ShareCast. Today, I have the great pleasure of introducing a guy actually who probably needs no introduction, but actually, Jeff, I got some great introductions for you today. This is my my good friend, Dr. Jeffrey Rouse. Good morning, Dr. Rouse. Hey, Dennis. How are you? you there good. you are sporting your Bears t-shirts. I know, yeah. I was actually up this morning working out, and I was either going to be Royals or, or Bears. So. I was I was expecting the Royals. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. No, it's, um, no Bears, this should be fun. Y'all are... Since y'all got Jay Cutler, I've been waiting for you to finally have a quarterback again. So you might have something on the horizon. Well, he's a Buckeye. He's a Buckeye. So I really have some very split uh, allegiances here. I'm rooting for the Bears, uh, but oh, this is really tough for me to root yeah. for a Buckeye. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm torn. I'm really torn. I'm going to go is back to the hat. Is this a little Hemingway-esque or what What are we doing this for? Is it well, like- you're one, the... my, you're one of my fancier friends. So I thought I'd get something <laughs> for you. So I pulled out my Panama hat. I didn't know. for you. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering if that was like the signature of a <laughs> webinar or something. Like it is it not. Logo or something. I might have to get like a little feather or something in the in the side. But oh, speaking of feathers, so this is crazy story. This is off totally off the sharecast information, but I have a cat. I'm not a cat person, but we have a cat. And so this morning, as I'm prepping for our little conversation this morning, my cat darts through the kitchen, flies against the wall or against the window. We have a big sort of bay window. And there was a bird in the house and the cat caught this bird oh, <laughs> in the air and he was just sort of hanging on to it. He didn't, he didn't kill the little, the little lovely beast and uh, brought up to the bedroom upstairs and got him to release the bird. I did a little catch present. Got it in a little box and freed it. And now our cat just has some feathers to play with. But um, speaking of feathers, there we go. I digress. Now you have, yeah. All right. As many of our, our listeners and watchers probably know, um, Jeff is a prosthodontist on staff at Spear Education uh, Center in Arizona. Uh, he is a he's a prosthodontist. He is also a I guess an airway prosthodontist, as I think he refers some of his stuff to. 
Uh, but there's more. I did research, Jeff. And there's some things about you I did not know. So can I tell you? Well, first, tell everyone I'm in private practice because everyone's going to get the impression that I just sit out there and make crap up. Never done it in my life. So we'll, we'll get I to that. I am in private practice. He, is, he does. He treats humans, as it turns exactly. out, right? Mostly. All right. Um, so what'd you find out? Well, here's what I did my breath. So it turns out that Jeffrey Norman Rouse is an American former competitive swimmer, a three-time Olympian champion <laughs> and world right. record holder in three events. And so how did you fit that into your schedule? There's, I also, uh, if you look at, played football for uh, University of Arkansas. Oh, I did not catch that one, but I and, and I'm a prosthodontist in New York City who does bronze sculptures. All of us have the same name. Well, who I nice. get, who I, when he was in practice in Indiana, kept getting his bills from Noble Biocare. <laughs> well, that worked out great. <laughs> For him. <laughs> You're such a giving person. That's so nice of you. Can, can I send my Noble Biocare bills to you? Do you, you mind? change your name legally. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, a, there's another Jeff Rouse that I was unaware of that I think that you're going to be pretty impressed with here. Can you see Oh, I did hear about him. Yeah. All right, not this dude, because I think that's sort of that you could pull off that hair, I think, and not this big dude in the middle. Hang on, you're coming up. There you go. See the good-looking yep. guy right there with the tats. Yep. This is more your style. I heard about. I heard about. Yeah, I did hear about him doing a little Guns N' Roses cover. Yeah, yeah. Nice. you're all I over the Guns N' Roses, right? I. Oh yeah. No, I'm good. <laughs> well, this is me, and I brought this up because I think about you all the time, Jeff. So. <laughs> all right. Enough of the Guns N' Roses. No, I heard, yeah, I heard about him as well. You know, you occasionally, it's been years, but like at the beginning of all, all your lecture careers and stuff, you'll occasionally go in and Google like your name just to see what is going on. You ever do that? Of course you do. Everyone does. Admittedly, admittedly does I've done it, that once or twice. You know? And uh, yeah, I would get those. And then I'd spend an evening going through YouTube videos of Tim watching. It was, he's, it's good. Yeah, he's pretty um, good. Yeah, I, I enjoyed my morning. Uh, listening to little yeah. Guns and Roses and uh, little covers. So, yeah. all right. So that neither of those are you, the Olympian and the musician and the prosthodontist in New York. You're not. You're none of the above. None of the above. Or the running back for Arkansas. I'm not in like a running back. So Jeff, let me uh, let me give a little bio on you, and you can fill in the gaps here. So this is going to be a two part uh, interview with Jeff because in this first part, I want to talk about your your background. You know, I actually remember being a young dentist, and I would see these veteran dentists who were on the circuit. They were lecturing. They were teaching. They were of great influence, and it was hard to imagine what they were like as young dentists, you know, as they were, as they were like mere mortals. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I remember like I, I would go to the Drake Hotel for the Restorative Academy and I would go down to the bar. This is before I was ever a member and I was this young dentist and I would just go and I would just hang out in the Coq d'Or, the, uh, the, the Golden Rooster, the bar down at the bottom of the Drake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd wait for spear to come down and for dawson to come down and all these these you know these epic signatory dentists and you just can't imagine that they they were just regular regular people they always were just uh, i put them on such a high pedestal so i think it's kind of nice for for our listeners especially our young listeners who aspire to do some great dentistry and stuff to sort of hear some about your past but well, let me let me throw a line in there was a Tom Colquitt, when he accepted the presidency at the Restorative Academy, his dad had been president. And his dad took him the first time and he was looking around at all the 
famous people at the time. Um, and his dad said, just remember, essentially, I'm, I'm going to screw the lineup, but it's something like the more famous they are, the nicer they are. Oh, interesting. And, and it's true. I mean, for the, I mean, there's always jerks. There's but, you. Yeah, there's me. <laughs> what you got, you got to put up with. <laughs> but it's true, though. If you think about all those people when they finally met you, and, yeah. and you talk to them, they're like the nicest. They're not only the nicest people, they're always, they typically are funny. Most of them have a really good sense of humor, but all of them want the young dentist to be them. Yeah. They all want that. And so as a young dentist, I remember doing exactly the same thing. In fact, the first time I went, Penn Jackson was showing, like saying hi to people as they came into the back door of the Drake as they're going in. And he kept introducing me and I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I use that guy's instrument and I do this and I met right. him and I read his textbook and blah, 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 right. And, but all those people want you to be them and they work, they'll do whatever it takes. And that's the part I was missing because I felt like I was going to interrupt them and, and, but they really want that. So now when you're sitting at the bar and they're going that, old guy over there looks a lot like Dennis Dennis Hartley's picture on Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somewhat. I get it. No, it wouldn't bug you at all to have them come up and and I mean if they're really driven, you can feel it. And if they're driven enough to come talk, holy crap, I'm all in. I love yeah, that. So I do too. Anyway, I'm, tell them people more about me now. <laughs> Let's talk about you. It's funny because I want to talk about um, a little bit later about uh, Frank Spears' presentation, talk about influencers and stuff at the uh, Academy of Aesthetic meeting in San Diego a few years ago, but we'll come back to that. So let me just get into this. So well, I want to talk about your history, but right now, currently you're on um, staff at, you're a, what, what are they, what are you? Resident reading? faculty. Resident faculty at the Seattle, Seattle Spear. Education Center. Spear Education. Spear. Spear Education Center. Sorry, I'm getting nervous talking to you, Jeff. You have this effect on me. <laughs> you are in private practice in San Antonio, correct? And in Seattle, I've lost track. Uh, so, um, Greg and I worked together for two and a half years. Okay. Something in that range. And I you- um, yeah, I was, it just was a long, it was a long commute. Long commute. <laughs> it was like my north side and south side practice was a long <laughs> four and a half hour flight. I'm going to be late for that two o'clock patient, I think. <laughs> Traffic was a little heavy. We did. I mean, if we ever talk about dentistry uh, during this. We might. <laughs> we actually, uh we spent, we, it, it, the thought process evolved during that time. So it was, a, it was absolutely worth that effort. Yeah. I want to get to that in a little bit. Are you still on staff at U, UT San Antonio? No. Okay. So you had no. been, you were previously an adjunct professor there. Yeah. Um, you've written a bunch. I'd like to, interestingly, you know, it's funny that dental schools are, um, it's strange because I wouldn't mind going out there still and being involved. It's, they seem like they're getting, like more difficult to work with over time. I don't know what you found at Marquette, but they weren't as open to ideas coming from the outside. Yeah, I think that's challenging for a lot of the schools. Yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that. Yes, I would agree to that. And why, I don't know. Uh, There certainly is a lot of pressures for all the material they have to present to students. And when I talk to students, I say, when I was in dental school back in the 80s, we had to learn an inch, inch of material a mile deep. Today, students have to re- learn a mile of information an inch deep. 
because there's so much more for them to learn. So I do know these dental schools are very challenged to get in everything from mm -hmm. analog to digital to, you know, pros and implants mm -hmm. and everything that, you know, and, that's and, my, and my demand is that if I'm going to come work with them, then I need time. So I at yeah. least need a half a day of their time, if not right. a full day. So and that's, that's probably tough. the reason. Yeah. It's tough. You back in the day, and we'll get to this a little bit, you taught and wrote a book with Dr. Bill Robbins, who was a wonderful dentist. And you guys taught and you wrote on global diagnosis. I think you guys sort of ripped this off from Frank Spears, facially generated treatment planning. Just saying. No, just kidding. I think I that's in, in the intro, that's what we give him credit for. <laughs> I know. And you do. And I think uh, and I think you guys have sort of taken that facially generated treatment planning and sort of put on steroids. You guys have added a lot of quality stuff that... I never thought about when I, after I'm going through Frank's facially generated treatment plan. Jeff is a member of the American Academy of Restorative Dentistry, of which I am also a member, one of the awesome organizations out there. Jeff, fill in what I missed. What other details do they need to know about you? Cliff's notes is I left dental school. I went to dental school without a clue and left dental school with barely a clue as to what I, I honest to God didn't know what a dentist did when I went to dental school. I, I was going to be a physician and a buddy of mine said, do you want to take the DAT? And I, because I obviously wasn't smart enough to be a physician and uh, took the DAT and got in dental school. And the guy said, make C's and you'll get out of here. And I was like, I can do that. So, so I met, I met Bill the last year. I, I what he was teaching our like gifted and talented dentists, whatever they call in the back door. <laughs> and I know, no, I, yeah, he, uh, he just let me go to their lit reviews just as a thing. And because of that, then I realized I needed more training. So I went to a two, two year GPR in Connecticut. Yeah. I want to ask you about your dental school experience just, just for briefly before we go on. So I think it's so interesting. There's so many people end up in dentistry where it's sort of maybe circuitous or just sort of happenstance they end up getting into mm. dentistry, right? You hear it all the time. So when you're in dental school and stuff, can you, can you sit, sort of think back to that time? Because we have a lot of young listeners and I think there's a lot of people who, like you said, were in dental school and sort of just didn't have a clue because that's sort of how I was too. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't put the pieces together when I was in dental school. My mom hated dentists. I went to dental offices maybe four or five times my entire life. I did not go to a dental office and shadow them before I decided to go to dentistry. I went to physicians' offices and shadowed them and hated every minute of it. So Why? knew I didn't want. Um, what do you hate about it? I hated the fact that they only spent a few minutes, and this is back in the eighties, right? So today it's worse. Worse for sure. But they only spent a few minutes with people, didn't really know anything, and, and were treating the thing of the day. I just couldn't see. And I went to different ones, and they all had kind of the same pattern. Mm -hmm. Hey, how you doing? What's the matter? Okay, here's a pill. Yeah. How right. you doing? What's going on? You know, and it was, I just I was like, God, that'd be boring. I want to spend some time with people. But I didn't even think about dentistry. I remember I was going to go, I was thinking three years medical school, my fourth year would get the, you know, medical school would be credited towards my degree. So I'd get my degree and go to medical school and be done. Then going into that summer, I, I went and did all this shadowing. I went, I don't want to do this. And honest to God, my grades were horrid. So there would, have, I probably could not have gotten in. Let's just go with, I couldn't have gotten in. <laughs> Well, we'll play that card. You, you may so I was walking around campus and I looked down below a building where there was a lab and a guy was in the lab with test tubes and beakers and crap. And I went, well, that would be boring. I don't want to do that. And then I went, well, how about a high school biology teacher? 
I thought, well, geez, that'd be really awful. And then dealing with, like I said, my, yeah, my buddy said, you, you know, I'm taking the DIT this weekend. You want to come down on the way he gave me the booklet to study. I studied it on the way down, took the test, apparently did well enough to get into school because I got into the two schools I applied to and showed up at dental school. And the guy said, C equals DDS. And I said, I got that. So that's all I shot for. When Just you be the middle. You did the, you, you were at AM for your undergrad? Yeah. Yeah. So it's so funny. And I, it's, it's unfortunate how the challenges to become a dentist today are so, so much greater oh my God. than when we were in school, yes. right? Oh. I, you know, it's funny. You talk about just sort of showing up at the DAT. I remember when I took the SAT in high school, I had just went on on a bender the night before, woke up in the morning, grabbed two number two pencils and just went in and took an SAT. And today's world, you know, there's years of preparation for the SAT. And in today's world, there's, you know, at least a year of preparation for the dental admissions test. Yeah, they got to do all kinds. I got a kid that came through the office and had to do a whole bunch of hours in my office. Yeah. And I mean, it's, no, I wouldn't. I couldn't have gotten into dental school today. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I started. And the world would have missed me. Yeah, I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I know that that's the truth. And that that that's the, the crime of it all is right, is that in in our efforts to get higher grade point average students, and nothing against them. They're they're awesome. But there are people who maybe could offer a different spice to the dental world that are gonna be super challenged getting in and with the curriculum as they are today and uh, you know, the challenge of getting into schools, but yeah, no, that's you know, really the, interesting. And I talk to my kids about it all the time. I've been incredibly lucky at running into the right people at the right time. So Bill happened to come into my life, my senior year of dental school, where I didn't, I honestly didn't have a clue what I was going to do next. I didn't know what running a practice was. Sure. I, di I didn't know anything. I didn't know. I was like, I would have gone to graduation and then gone, what am I going to do now? <laughs> Right. with my DDS. So Bill came into my life and I realized I needed to know more. The difference is I have never been afraid to just do th something like, okay, let's go to residency one year. No, let's do two years. And, you know, just like going up and practicing with Greg and Frank up in Seattle. It's like Greg said one day I was sitting in the back of a car and he goes, God, I got so many patients. I need somebody in the office. And I was like, I can do that. I actually, it was like, I texted him about an hour later and I went, you know, I can do that. So, cause it'd be really cool to have, you know, to kind of work through this material with you. Yep. How about I come up? I mean, I just left. I, I would go back and forth every other week. Quite the community. So I've never, I've never been afraid to just do something. Well, and then the next part of my history is I went to the residency. I practiced for 12 years. And then I realized if I was going to really have an impact, I needed the specialty certificate. Not that I could do necessarily better dentistry or anything else, but it gives me an automatic credibility when I speak. Yeah. So when I stand up, when you say you're a prosthodontist, you know, just a prosthodontist, blah, blah, blah. I don't have to prove to the people that I know what I'm talking about. It's given. Now, it doesn't mean that it's right. Nope. It's just what it is. It's just the reality of me standing up with that certificate. And so Bill and I had been together and writing textbooks and I'm in the restorative Academy already. So I'm doing pretty darn good yep. without a pros certificate. And yet from 2000 to 2004, half day, I would go to pros half day, I would run my practice. And then I go and work in the lab all night long. 
So I put in four years that were really, really hard in order to get that certificate. So I've never, I've always, when, when I've gotten a lucky break, Bill is in my life. Bill wants to come practice with me. Bob Cronin allows me to come back to a residency. Greg Kinzer says, come practice in Seattle. I've always said, okay. I've never been afraid of it. And I think that's the difference. And it's seeing you walk into the bar at the Restorative Academy, the person that isn't afraid to come up and talk to you and take advantage of that, there are advantages of that. Yeah, so. there's no doubt. I think, you know, it's interesting. I I toyed with the idea of going back for my Prost degree at Marquette and ultimately decided not to, but for a lot of the same reasons that you talked about. Some of it was with uh, teaching. Some of it was with patients. You have this immediate credibility. When uh, not, uh, so in, in our community, for, we did. Oh, we, you did? Okay. We had, we had a number of prosthodontists that were in the community where I was practicing. And so okay. for some of the so sort of put stuff, you on there. Okay. I yeah, because they'd come in and say, well, what's the difference between you and Dr. Prosthodontist? And then I'd have to say, well, my, my training is after school, theirs is during school, you know, stuff like that. I don't know that it changed the tra- trajectory so much of what I'm doing, but what, would you, what advice would you give to people who are thinking about going back after they've been practicing? Because that had to be a big decision. I mean, I know it's a big decision to go back. And I, I cut it. I got, once again, I got lucky though. I didn't have to sell my practice because I couldn't have done that. You had to make money. You had to make money so you could do your residency. Yes. Yep. So the ADA allows part-time residents and they also allow you to get credit for experience. And so once our pediatric program here, our pediatric dentistry residency program would take in like three and a half residents a year. Mm-hmm. And I met one of the half. Okay. And that's how I knew about it. I knew that they, that it was allowed. Got and it. So I went and talked for a year. I talked to Bob Cronin at San Antonio about mm-hmm. that opportunity. And after a year, he said, well, apparently you're serious because you keep talking to me about this. All right, let's do it. And the other part that had to occur is that I had it because process three years. So right. I, I had to get that last one forgiven that last which would be two years, right? Sure. Because not doing six years. Yeah. I'll do four, but I won't do six. So at the end of four years, here's the scary part. You then have to apply for it. <laughs> you don't know going <laughs> into it fair. that it's going to be forgiven. So anyway, he had to, he did it once, once again, just the right person giving you a lucky break, but you saying, okay, I'm, I'm there, I'm doing it. I think that's important. So what, what would you, what would you advise people? Someone who's like, um, know, no, oh, that was I want to go into one, I was, though. I was talking more about me. I know, I know, <laughs> but let's, let's help out the, no, other. What, the, I guess the first, the first thing is you have, I think you have to realize that dental school just teaches function and biology. So you were talking about facially generated treatment planning. So it's aesthetics, function, structure, biology. Dental school is just about structure and biology. And so you will always be a tooth dentist if all you do is leave it at that level. And so you really have what you said, a couple of choices. The choices are, do I learn this through school or do I learn it in a continuing education environment? I find at the very beginning of careers, learning it in school makes more sense because financially it makes more sense. And once you get out, you're going to have to start repaying bills and you're going to have financial constraints that are going to limit your ability to really evolve quickly. 
So the advantage of going to residency isn't necessarily the, it's about speed. I mean, you can get it, get there either way. I just think it puts you on a faster track. Mm-hmm. You get in a couple of years, what it would probably take you 10 right. to do through a continuing education route. Yep. Now down the road, you're both going to come to the same knowledge base. I mean, a rehab done in your office and my office are going to look exactly the same. We're right. going to do the same thing. But, you know, you said Dr. Prasad on us down the street just got there quicker yeah, because they did it in school and you had to evolve through it. And then you had to find the cases to do it yep. and you had to talk the people into doing it, right? Yep. As opposed yep. to the school where they're coming to you to do it. Exactly. So you have opportunities for cases. You have people to mentor you along the way. It's just a better environment to learn. And you don't have the stress of paying bills. Yep. You know, and, and the family and all the other stuff that you're dealing with. So I love residency programs if it is feasible for you to get there. Problem, once again, today is I probably wouldn't have gotten into the residency program. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, they're really hard. Yeah. Now, I, uh, let me, I'll put a caveat in there. I think the best prosthodontists in the, the world were general dentists for a while. I, in watching my self in comparison to the people that went through with me, I got more out of it because I didn't have to learn to prep and impress. And yeah, right. right. I had that part. Yep. I got to focus on the things I was weak at doing Mm -hmm. removable in particular. I wasn't good at. So I got to focus on those things and I got to focus on the more intellectual part of it rather than the mechanical part of it. So the military, and it's not true today, but it used to be the Air Force, especially you had to go three to five years in their general dentistry before you could apply to go back into process. Oh, interesting. And and that's why those guys that came out in the day, sure, they were so freaking good. Yeah. Because they had already done it a while and now they're really focused. So I think that's good. Now, it doesn't necessarily apply to other residencies, though. It's not like you're going to go out and do a ton of ortho, right? right. I mean, although I love working with specialists that have been restorative dentists. Yeah. Like yeah. they understand me better. So. Yep. I think that's absolutely true. I It's people that I get to work with that had a GP background. They get that GP experience. And I think also doing the residency later, you're, you're, you should be <laughs> most likely more mature. Right. And I think then it gives you a much It'll, different set of eyes. You should be. You, yeah, yeah, should be. you and I. <laughs> More mature. You did, a, you did a GPR at Connecticut, right? You're up in Connecticut for your GPR. Yeah. How, first of all, why they, why they let a Texan into Connecticut? And did they, did they give you a police escort on the way out when they finally came out of there? Uh, it was it was a good program. It was really good. It was actually Harold Lowe's karyology program for oh, years. Sure. Okay. And um, and then it had to evolve because you couldn't get. I mean, it as the the ADA had all these requirements, karyology isn't going to qualify. So sure. they evolved it to a GPR. And then the coolest thing happened. Once again, I just kept getting these really lucky breaks. 1984 implants, endosseous implants from Brandemark were introduced at the in Toronto at the Toronto conference, right? So now in 84, 85, they start spreading through the US in schools. San Antonio happened to be one of the surgical sites. Connecticut happened to be one. In order to do implants at that point in time, only oral surgeons could place them and only prosthodontists could restore them. Well, Connecticut got the ability to do the surgery, but they didn't have a pros program. 
So they had a two-year GPR though, and they brought a prosthodontist in to run it. That was their workaround. Yeah. And so I went and did a two-year GPR that was a pros program. Oh, and so we didn't have all, we had very little lit review. We were just cranking out just cranking dentistry. Out. And, uh, you know, occasionally I did general anesthesia and I had to do some hospital stuff, sure. but it was pretty much a pros program. So when I came out, I spent a year and a half working for a periodontist here, just doing implant rehabs day in and day oh, out. Interesting. Oh, wow. So, so that's a great start. Cause I was going to ask you about that. One of the, you know, one of the big challenges in today's world, especially though it was certainly in when I got out is getting into practice and stuff. Obviously there's different pressures today, uh, you know, DSOs and different types of practices, insurance type built practices. Those are all, you know, pressures on young dentists coming out. So when you came back from Connecticut and you went back, you went back to San Antonio, correct? I was going to buy a practice in Houston. I had already made arrangements to go visit with the people on Monday morning. And I talked to the guy here in town that was a, he was a periodontist, a famous periodontist. And he had done a set up a practice where he decided, I don't want to, these implants are so new and the people working with them, my restorative dentists are, are ending up messing things up for me. And so I'm going to just control everything. So he brought a restorative guy in and that guy was leaving and he needed somebody else. So the weekend before I bought the practice, he offered me an opportunity to do that. So, yeah, so I did blade implants. I did designs for blade implant companies. In fact, some of the pros, we did subperiosteals. We did Ramus frames. We did, I mean, we did all kinds of, and then we did endosseus and and I designed a few implant company stuff as well so it was cool then you got off and you started your own practice i bought a practice yeah i bought a uh, did you work with someone during that time when you when you bought that practice with so you so he he walked out you walked in yeah but once again i keep catching these breaks this guy was very into and this was in the day when the the interest rate was 10 percent. yep and so the dentist would fund a chunk of it, like 80% of it or 50, I can't remember. It was a big chunk though. And so you would pay um, 20% down and 80%, whatever. So they had a desire to make sure the practice ran well, right? Yep. So for three months, he came in full-time every day and sat with me and went through stuff. He did ortho, so he showed me how to do that. Cool. And then uh, for three months, he would come in once a week and go over go over things with me. And cool. The nice part is he directed me where, you know, you need to go here for continuing education on case presentations. You know, you need to go here for the ortho. You need to do this. You need to do that. And he had his office set up the way that Bob Barkley had talked about. I don't know if you remember. For those who are not familiar with Bob Barkley, he was a, he was a out, out of the box thinker in dentistry in the in the 80s right i think that's when bob was 70s and 80s 70s and 80s yeah Yeah. so it was about co-development co-discovery um a lot on you know involving your patient in in evolving their dental health he also had a bunch of hygiene kind of things as well right his big deal was coat when you ever hear hear co something discovery in particular that was bob yeah, so, he, he sort of changed dentistry from the uh, dogmatic, the dentist says you need, you know, you need two crowns and you need, you know, whatever. Uh, Bob Barkley was about how, how to bring the patient into the, into the discovery of their needs and help them 
sort of almost sort of design their treatment, right? Because it's based on their their needs, desires, wants, stuff like that. So he had a practice set up on that philosophy, and uh, and there was a lot of the hygiene component to it, where he would he had actually a little room set up for hygiene. It was a really cool system, but he also had the whole office wired for video and sound so that he could listen to how his staff talked to patients later um, and they could review it at staff meetings. No, this would be a better way to say that. And yep. it was really good, but he would listen to my case presentations and do the same thing. Oh. And I was open enough that I, I saw that as a huge opportunity yeah. rather than what, you know, being, being critical. Yeah. It was really, I mean, I just, I keep catching these breaks, but being able to be open to it, I think is the key. When I was a young dentist, I would have my staff sit outside my operatory on the sort of against the wall and they'd have a little clipboard. And I had my assistant and my front desk person. And every time I said like a dental term, like papilla, they would make like a little check, right? And anytime I would like talk over the patient, I'd interrupt them, then they'd make a comment and stuff. And I would have to pay them. So I'd, I'd have to give them money for like a dollar every time that I said like, you know, gingiva or papilla or occlusion, um, I'd have to pay them. And so it was my way to sort of train myself to, first of all, learn to listen to the patient, but also talk in a non-dental vocabulary with the patient and bring them into the conversation. So I didn't have the advantage that you had, but we can certainly make that work in our practices if we bring in our very skilled listeners who very often are not the dentist, but everyone else in the practice, you know, that's a great opportunity. Oh. What, what challenges did you have then? You got into your practice, and I love asking this question, Jeff, because there's so many young dentists uh, who are buying practices or taking over practices, and they, I think, very often feel like they're unique in some of the challenges that they're going through. What, what do you remember as being some of the tougher times and the challenges you had? Managing staff, firing somebody for the first time. I mean, my associateship wasn't fine. Because I had a, a wife, his wife, the other guy's wife involved in the process and they kept changing the, the contract and stuff. So I, I've dealt with the, the bad business challenges. On your own, though, the nice part about being on your own is they're your challenges mm -hmm. and your solution. I love that about dentistry. So I had at one time thought it'd be neat to go back and run a pros program. And then I realized that somebody else would be telling me what I can do and what I can't do and how I could sure. do it. And I thought, well, that ain't going to work. Right. And so I don't know, you know, challenge, challenge would imply that, I mean, it's kind of out of my control in many ways. And I think in dentistry, we've got a lot of difficulties that we have to work past, but I, if you're running your own practice, Right. Yep. So that's been my perspective the whole time is, yes, I've, I've had to fire people. I've had to deal with shitty patients. I've had to deal with an office that leaked and had black mold in it. I've moved to a new location. and had to deal with horrible landlords. And, but they're always my challenges. They're always things that are still that I can deal with and I can move on. I had to deal with sitting out eight weeks to the coronavirus. I mean, right. But I mean, we, at the end, we had a great year last year. We had a better year than we did the year before. And because it's my challenge, it's my thing. It's my opportunity to do something different or see something different. That's what I love. I love that I can make that choice. So if I was to say, what's the biggest challenge in dentistry, it's to somehow get yourself in a position to control your own destiny. Yeah, that's the biggest one. Don't you think like as dentists, that's sort of how we are, right? We like, we like controlling the outcome, 
right? I mean, that's, that's you know, I would true. say that until uh, there are until airway, people, yeah, until airway came along. <laughs> no, until I I'm spending a lot more time with out at Spear. A really cool thing is happening, which is that the average age of our dentist is getting really young, mm -hmm. amazingly young, like yep. just graduated, just graduating, yeah, and there are a group of newer dentists that don't see running a practice in the future. That's not their world. And it's, that's different to me. That's something that dentists, when I came out, that was the goal. It was like, yeah. how, how can I figure out a way to run my own practice or put it together a group where we run it together? But it was, yeah. we, it was always this, I want control. And I can see the younger dentist point of view. I mean, I, I get it because they don't, they, you know, like they can go, well, Megan's not doing her job and somebody else gets to deal with that stuff. They get yep. to go home and the paycheck yes. arrives and that's cool. I get it. I would hate that though. Yeah. I mean, just my gut would hate that because they're the price you pay for that degree of security is the lack of the, well, my son got married in Turkey and, and just a couple of weeks ago, and I, and it was a last minute kind of a month and a half notice. Like we decided to do this. The Corona thing is cleared up we can make it happen a month and a half from, from now we're going to Turkey. Can you come? And I go, yeah, yeah. here's block those two weeks off. We don't now. have to ask anybody. We're out of here. Yeah. So I, I got to just shut my office down for two and a half weeks and leave. Yep. And you know what? I'm the only one that had to say it. No one else. Right. I didn't have to run it by anybody. I didn't have to deal with that. I've never, I haven't ever worked Fridays. I don't have to ask anybody for that. Right. I just decided it. If I want to go back and put airway protocols in, I just do it. You just do it. <laughs> you know? So I think that if I was to say what the biggest challenge is, I would urge. Oh, and, and the other thing is in order to evolve your dentistry, you have to have control. I don't oh, think, sure. I don't think within a corporate setting, you can evolve to do the dentistry. So if you watch, I mean, if somebody's sitting in the audience watching what you do and they want to do that, if that's really where they want their dentistry to go, they have to have control. They've got to have control or what, at, at least partial control. It's got to be in a group of yep. some form. You know, what I've seen is I've seen, uh, um, cause I've been teaching for so long at Marquette. And so I still keep in contact with a lot of the former students that a lot of them will go into a DSO or some sort of group practice, but because of that lack of control that ultimately they slide and pivot and they start looking for their own practice because they want to have that control. And certainly not all of them, but I think there is that sort of experience where like, I want to do more of this type of stuff, but the practice that I'm in, it's just not designed for that. It's not going to work in this type of practice. And if they, they come to realization that if they want to do that, they have to have control and that's forcing them into looking at joining into a smaller practice or, you know, smaller unit type of practice where they're more control or buying their own practice. So the, I'm seeing that the hard part. The hard part is it's, it's my life in, in which is an opportunity is going to come up and you got to be brave enough to say, okay, and that's tough, it's especially, scary. especially when you got, when you got, we always talk about student loans, but geez, you got a car payment and a house payment and you got, Oh, Kids. you know, wife just told me she's pregnant again or whatever. I mean, yeah. and, and it's even tougher on women dentists oh, I mean, without question. I mean, that's, I, cause now you got all these other 
societal pressures and stuff that are crazy and, and yeah. that they have to deal with. So I don't, yeah, I hope more young dentists get the message that they ought to be on their own and out of that environment, because I think there's such joy that comes from control. Well, it's a yin yang, right? There's the, the yin yang is that, yeah, it's great. There's all the pressures of owning a practice. There's all the stressors of owning a practice, but ultimately it's on you. What's great about dentistry, I think, is that there's so many opportunities to figure out how to get it fixed, right? So study clubs, uh, other dentists to talk to, consultants, you can get these things fixed. And as long as you don't get into a, a situation where you feel like you're alone, that you're stuck in, under a nutshell and it's hard to see your way out of it, as long as you're open to talking to others and understanding that you are not alone in the situations that every dentist is going through, every dentist has gone through before, or not everyone, but certainly most of us have gone yeah. through. Maybe I'm disconnected with the world of dentistry, but I don't hear of a lot of foreclosures on dental offices. No. I mean, I think I, it's like once you get in there, yeah, the, you may not have a good month and you may have difficulty. I mean, I, I've had to for years. I mean, I was one rehab away from not paying bills. Yeah. And if that one canceled, I'd have to go, well, I guess I'm not getting a paycheck this time yeah, for sure. And, or, you know, I guess Patterson dental is going to have to suck it up because I can't pay that bill off. And I've Absolutely. done that a lot. It's, I mean, I've juggled who I'm paying this month a lot, but I still had control over everything. And I still was happy to, I mean, it was, it, it was a good experience. So I haven't heard of anyone that that got into situations where they were juggling this bill and juggling that bill and ended up having to go file bankruptcy. And that just doesn't come up much in dentistry unless they do something incredibly stupid. Well, that's, that's kind of it, right? Unless you're sort of doing things that are irresponsible um, to yourself or to your practice, that's typically not going to happen. But for, I mean, I was certainly in that position also. I think this is important for people to hear is that without question, there were months where I, I just wasn't getting paid. When I built my new practice, I went a year without paying myself when I built my new practice because I was putting everything to, to pay down the debt on the new practice. And we just tightened our belts, sucked it up, and uh, everyone in the office got paid except for, except for Dr. Dennis Hartley. But you know what? I had control of that. That was my decision. That's what I needed to do. Um, it was my decision to build the practice and all that. So I, I think it's wonderful, but it's not without those type of stressors. And, but in the end, we get to control things. And I think for people like us who want to have control, I think that's what makes it so, so beautiful. It, yeah. And you get to do this stuff that's fun too. You right. get to do dentistry that's so, it's challenging and it's complex and it's, but it's so much fun and you don't get that opportunity otherwise. I mean, I, I, I see all these brand new dentists coming to Spear and when I hear about their stories and they're involved in organizations that I know they're going to go home and just get frustrated because they can't use. Right. And they're sharp. They know they're, I mean, it, they, they, they get it. They get yep. the material. They understand what's going on. And then they go home and they're like, you know, I, I can't do it. And so I'm hoping that we get a little bit of a pendulum swing more towards a bunch of dentists now start coming out of those environments and seeing 
that there's something better that can be done. And, and people want that. I mean, yes. there's a group. I actually love the fact that there are corporate dentists near me, dentistry groups near me, because those take the patients that I don't want in my practice. You know, I don't have time for those people. I want the, I want the people wanting the next that I can educate and evolve and do the next for. So I've never been challenged by those group of people. I, they're, it's cool. I, I agree. I think those, the DSOs and practices like that, I think they serve a uh, population that wouldn't fit well into my practice. And, and that's awesome. And I think they give young dentists an opportunity to get a job, which is absolutely critical given the amount of debt that they have. And I think there are many DSOs that are working really hard to do things as in the right way and having education for their, for their young doctors and stuff. Uh, So I have no, no qualm with DSOs at all. I think that for the individual dentist though, you have to figure out if your end goal is going to be satisfied in a restrictive practice that I think most DSOs are going to have to be in, or do you want to push the envelope, start learning more, be able to create more opportunity for your patients. And I think that's what general practice ownership provides for people. And I guess everyone's going to decide for themselves, which I think is ultimately what's awesome is that you have multiple pathways you can choose and, you know, owning your own practice with its ups and downs, heartaches and, you know, and, and love and fun and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's just part of the whole game. And so I, 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 like you, I'm optimistic. I think that there's going to be, there's a pendulum swing and I think it's going to swing into somewhere more in the middle where there's going to be many dentists that are in big group practices, but there's still going to be a bunch of us that are doing our smaller practices uh, more boutique practices and providing for patients at our. I, I need that because I want to sell my practice That's at some right. point. I, gotta, I, I, I think they'll be there. <laughs> I need somebody to buy it. I so your question was challenges, and and honestly, I tends to have a negative connotation of challenge, and I loved it. I I think I think private practice is amazing, and yes, I you have things that are more difficult, days that are more difficult, but I just I I've always enjoyed it. I'll tell you what I hate about private practice is HR. I hate doing human resources. I do, you know, and thank God for my partner, Chris, because he's okay with it. I don't know if he loves it, but he's okay with it. And so he'll do it for us. But I, uh, I'm no good at it. And I don't like, I'm no good at it because I just don't like it. I don't like worrying about that stuff. I I just don't talk to my staff. And if you don't, if you never talk to them, then you have no HR concerns. <laughs> this is your tip for young All right, everyone, get out your pen and paper here. This, you're going to need to write this down. This is from the mouth of Dr. Jeffrey Robb. That was back in the day when you would go, oh, it's, you know, it's Thursday afternoon. That's our Friday. Let's go have a drink together. I'm like, yeah. Mm, no, we're done with that. Yeah. I, in fact, if we have to talk, that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Jeff, here, here's a problem is that we haven't even started talking about sleep stuff and we're, waiting. I know I'll come back. So can we'll we do, do another this? time? I no. I let's, uh, um, we're going to take a pause and then we're going to do a uh, part two, because I think we have to talk about some memory before we let you go. Okay. So, uh, Denline trainers meet up with us with the next episode. And we're going to talk about earway. And I want to learn about the Seattle protocol. I want to learn about the stuff that you're doing at Spear. And that I think will be a good conclusion to our conversation because I can't let you go without talking about that stuff. So dental online trainers, we'll see you at our next session when we continue this conversation with Dr. Jeff Rouse. So we will see you at that next meeting. Well, thanks so much for listening or viewing our ShareCast today. 
If you enjoyed this information and you want to get more information from dental online training, then check us out at dothandson.com. That's one word, dothandson.com. Or check us out on Instagram or Facebook at HeartleadBDS. And be sure to share this with your friends and colleagues who you think might be able to get some great information from the Sharecast that we've shared with you today. Okay, until next time, I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb, yours for better dentistry.